Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan. Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right. 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. We have Dan Taylor with us from um, from Capital, and Dan's going to share uh, with us today about a rather interesting business model that he operates for businesses and commercial real estate. So, Dan, over to you. Just first of all, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and where what got you into where you are today, just so the readers can understand a little bit of the background. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm uh, Dan Taylor from Taylor Capital. Uh, that's taylorcapital.co.uk. And uh, we've been investing in businesses and commercial real estate for more than 30 years. Um, and we completed over 41 transactions uh, with a value of over £100 million, either completed, owned or under development. And, you know, so what do we do at Taylor Capital? We actually help two types of people. Uh, we help entrepreneurs grow, scale and exit their business. Uh, while helping investors grow, protect, and scale their capital, investing in the best of British businesses and commercial real estate uh, via our boutique private equity club called Taylor Capital. And um, principally, we, we target, um, yeah, I suppose, two types of businesses. We also target shops and uppers. We just completed a, a shops and uppers in Guildford. I think we featured that in YPN. Uh, it's got a GDV of 14 million. Um, great, great property and a great location, to be honest. But um, the two types of our core focus are business acquisitions. Business acquisitions where uh, the underlying asset is the commercial property that's been traded from by the business. So the two types of businesses, what are they? On the left, which is what we're going to talk about today, in one case study in particular, are businesses in decline, where you can repurpose, reprofile redundant retail into high-performance, income-producing assets. Um, on the right, the second kind of core focus, are very profitable businesses. They've been around for 10, 20, 30 years, and uh, you know the owners are doing over half a million pounds profit, and um, we help them, you know, what I call the kind of holy grail of exits, if you like. And hopefully, they've got commercial property as well. And when a, a, a kind of a deal comes along where it's a business and it's a commercial property, that kind of gets me excited because it's the okay. two sides of the one kind of coin. But today, we're not talking about the big businesses. We're talking about, you know, perhaps businesses in decline where in that area, there's an alternative use of different demand. And that demand, if you repurpose that redundant um, retail and reprofile that, you can create high-performance income-producing assets and get that massive arbitrage and equity spread by increasing force and capital appreciation. Yeah. Okay, that, that's great. So we know which one that we're going to be focusing on today, Dan, which is more the businesses in decline. And I guess that's very, very relevant and topical at the moment, given where we've just gone through in the economy uh, with the pandemic. Uh, and I think also given, um, you know, what we are seeing in, in trends in the way that um, people have changed in their habits with the impact to the, to, to the retail high street, and I think also, you know, what happened with the planning changes that the government brought in last year about trying to repurpose the, the high street. Mm. So I think that's really, really relevant. So just before we get into some more of the detail, Dan, can you just tell me quickly, um, obviously you've been doing this for a while very successfully, but how did you get into this sort of model? Oh, into this model? Yeah, well, I've always been in business, um, never had a job, to be honest, and uh, love being an entrepreneur, uh, the highs and lows, and so we've had highs, we've had lows, we've made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, and made a lot of money back again very quickly, as you learn from experiences. Um, and how did I get into this? We started doing some, I suppose, we did our first commercial conversion. Uh, to residential, actually, which is really not you know my core focus, but even though I do it, that was in the late 80s, 1988 or something, 89. Um, okay. And then after that, in the early 90s, uh, we I kind of, what I call, failed forward. We opened a number of businesses, didn't work too well. We learned a lot from it. 
Um, and after that, kind of got back into my calling, which is, you know, commercial real estate and businesses. And we did our first kind of, uh, I suppose, yeah, you know, our first great project uh, in 95, where we bought something for 117,000 and then sold it for 750,000, you know, a couple of years later. Um, and that really excited me because in that deal, even though we did very well, we left the quarter million pounds on the table for the next guy. Um, because very it was nice. once one strategy I didn't realize at the time, which I subsequently learned. And uh, and then after after that, I, we kind of got involved and we thought, great, 117, 750 exit, not too bad. Imagine we did that on a slightly bigger scale. Um, and we start up on what's called a business roll-up acquisition strategy, which is buying small businesses uh, that own their commercial real estate and uh, ultimately gathering them together. Because you know, small businesses are faced with uh, severe problems that, you know, as a result, uh, they don't have a level playing field in the UK, you know, versus the public sector. So public companies trade for 10 to 30. SMEs uh, trade for, on average, 2.6. So, but buying, you know, uh, gathering up a number of businesses, you start to trade at different multiples. Therefore, you're accelerating values. Um, so that, that 2.6, could you just explain what is that multiplier, Dan? What does that multiplier represent for the SMEs? It's a multiplier on profits. Now, profits is a very, there's various different types of profit. Uh, there's EBITDA, there's no PAT, there's post-tax, there's pre-tax. You know, so it really depends what you're talking about. But let's not go into that kind of detail. Let's just keep it a high-level okay. profit. Um, and the average business in the UK, uh, 91% for those that are on the market, only 9% sell. So out of all, every 100 businesses on the market, 9% sell. And when they do sell, they sell for an average 2.6 times profit. Yeah. Okay. Versus the public realm, you know, they're selling between 10 and 30. Is that a data um, type situation? No, just in a listed environment, you get a lot more because you bring, um, you haven't got the problems that small businesses have, um, right. which is kind of scale, liquidity, and legacy kind of thing. Um, but the, the key thing is, you know, if we're focus on the kind of business we're talking about today, and we've got a great case study that really shows um, the power of this, is instead of, um, you know, right now, uh, there's a lot of people going after the PD, and quite rightly so. Uh, there's a shortage of housing, which is a fantastic uh, problem. And when there's a big problem, there's big opportunities. Um, but a lot of people are after that market. And because of that, uh, the agents are now realizing, you know, PD, and they're baking the PD into a lot of these schemes um, when they're selling it. So they're taking a lot of the food off the table. They're already baking okay. that profit in kind of thing, which is uh, a bit of an issue. And we've really seen this in Q4 last year, uh, where prices have risen and a lot of these deals are just not viable. And one sector, one area that's really, really viable is buying businesses where they own their own commercial real estate and that business is underperforming. It's maybe a business in decline. And for example, we we bought one in Paisley, and um, which is west of Scotland, west of Glasgow actually, and um, this property is about, uh, I think it's like 11, 13,000 square feet. I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly, but it's quite chunky, three stories. That's quite big. <laughs> yeah, that's not, yeah, that is quite big. Yeah. And uh, it was on the market for two years, would you believe, over two years. Um, and, you know, and interestingly, it was on a business broker's website. Yeah. And a national one as well. So a national business broker's website, this um, business was on for and the business was losing money so you have to obviously this is not um, a strategy you want to jump in with any kind of education information or whatever but um, anyway I seen that and I just seen one thing number one I seen, I seen a huge pile of property uh, for offers over 340 um, and we managed to secure that for 120,000 um, 13,000 square feet yes and, uh, and then we managed to secure tenant at 24,000 a year as well so it's kind of kicking off twenty percent yield day one, but that wasn't really the 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 big you know the the best play because as soon as I went there, I realized one thing immediately. It kind of hit me in the face and nearly knocked me over because it was so exciting. And that was that the fact that right next door the students' union is there, 
you know, where, where they go to socialize and stuff. Yeah. And then over the road was the University of Delft, University of West of Scotland. And, um, and the University of West of Scotland is a, you know, a very good university, very, very busy. And on, on top of that, additionally, it's only six minutes on the train to Glasgow. So immediately mm-hmm. I see that, I just thought student accommodation, but this, which is absolutely in booming, and the business that was there was in decline. So you got one thing going in decline that we're picking up assets of pence on the pound, and you got another industry that you just need to, re, you know, obviously go in with eyes wide open, yeah. and you know, and then repurpose this property. It just so happens this one is quite a, it's, it's, it's uh, grown into quite a large uh, development, and. Um, you know, we've also acquired the land next door to make a, a larger scheme. And we're going to be putting there 150 brand new purpose-built student, uh, you know, student studios, which is kind of like a, if you picture a, a boutique student hotel, it's kind of like that, but they're all studio rooms. Now, what does that mean? They're not HMOs. And there's a number of reasons why you would want to do an HMO. Um Nothing wrong with them, but studios have, you know, with COVID in mind, it's kind of baking in the future. You know, if any isolation events ever happen in the future, because what is the studio? It's a self-contained mini apartment. You know, instead of an HMO, you have communal spaces for the the lounge and the kitchen and stuff. Uh, Each studio has their own cooking facilities. Yeah. It also has communal space, but it's standalone. So yeah. it's kind of future baked in in case anything ever happens again. God forbid, hopefully not, touch wood. Um, and I think I think also, Dan, just, just to add to that, if I may, I think obviously you're targeting students for now, but I think having them individually would mean that perhaps if anything changed in that area with the demographics or, or the university, you've got something there that, you know, you could still potentially do as, as, as residential because it's still got that appeal, as you say, where we've been, people want their own sort of space, don't they? Um, and also, ju- just to clarify before we move on, obviously this one's in Scotland. Now, I'm not an expert on Scotland real estate. I know that the, I know the process works slightly differently. That's about as far as my knowledge my knowledge goes. But do do I'm assuming because you mentioned you did in the UK. I'm assuming this sort of process, this methodology, can be applied to whether it's Scotland or whether it's the UK. Are there any key real differences in what you need to do? Um, no, they, everything's the same. It's, you, you're really looking at businesses in decline, which is UK. Well, Western, you know, it's just all over the place. It's, okay. um, so where where do we have business in decline? Uh, it's sectors we're talking about. That's not geographically uh, specific. It's sector specific. Yeah. Okay. So some businesses are going uh, down. Some businesses are going up. And you want to be in the in- intersection of that um, to really make massive gains. Because if you think about this one costs £120,000, obviously the cost to demolish and refurb, but the GDV on this one is going to be £15 million. Nice. Which is, uh, quite nice, yes. Could be a lot more than that, but you know, conservatively it's 15 million, which is a hundred thousand pounds per studio. Um, if that was an HMO, um, that would be seventy-five thousand per room. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you get a uh, obviously a negative discount um when you're talking about HMOs um for a number of different reasons. And also where you're talking about the studios and something a little bit elevated in terms of an offering. We're really trying to lead the market in terms of, um, you know, living together to create this kind of student hotel thing, and uh, which really opens up the markets in the Far East to Europe who have higher expectations of, you know, what they should be living in. And, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, yeah, I think we've all seen, and I was having this conversation with a um, surveyor actually at a property mine earlier this week that, um, which happens to be in a HMO, that what maybe students years ago would have accepted as being an acceptable standard, um, you know, is, you know, some of them sort of wouldn't want to use that as a kennel for the, the dog these days. You know, if we go back to what some of the standards were many years ago. So I think expectations on standards, and I know that the international students, because that potentially most of them have got bigger pockets, their, their expectations are even, you know, so much higher as well. 
Yes, well, in this uh, in this area, um, because obviously you don't just jump into these things, you have to do research. And part of the research is uh, getting to know the university well and, uh, and trying to find out where, you know, number one, where their occupancy levels are. Number two, where the big demand, the growth and demand is going to be in the future. And really, uh, where there's demand, you should supply demand. Never kind of do a Kevin Costner and build and hope the demand will come. Make sure the demand's there first. So uh, the big demand seemed to be from China. And the Chinese want to put 300 students through Paisley UWS, University West of Scotland, sorry, um, per year, but only for one year. So they're educating them in uh, obviously China. And for the last year, the fourth year, they want to kind of finish them off in Paisley and every year send 300 new ones. So they've kind of designed with that in mind. They have a higher expectation of what normal is kind of thing uh, because they're quite affluent. Um, and we want to provide that. But by providing studios, you also have the post-grad market. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yep. and, and where UWS, they owned a lot of tenement blocks. You know, the old tenement blocks, you know, where yeah. uh, the old stone steps that keep, keep going up and up and it's kind of curved like that because <laughs> there's that much traffic's been over the last kind of 80 years or something. Um, and that's, a, they're the last stock to get filled. You know, so new build is always the first to be filled. Studios yeah. are first to be filled. Closest to the university, first to be filled. And we take all those boxes. Um, so it's a really exciting proposition, but it's the kind of thing anybody listening or reading this article could get involved in. And why is that? Because this was, remember, this, this uh, business was on the market for over two years, sitting there, it offers over £340,000. A lot of people came to kick the tires, but you've got to go with glasses on of what this could be as opposed to what it is kind of thing. Yeah. And in, interestingly, I think what was quite key that you mentioned that I picked up on is that this was originally advertised on a business broker's website, not necessarily maybe a commercial agent or, or a right move type approach, which perhaps some people wouldn't think of looking at if they're trying to locate property, for example, Dan, I suppose it's a different, it's looking at things differently, isn't it? it as I said, it's taking those glasses off and looking at things differently. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, as soon as I seen it, which was two years later after it got listed. So, uh, you know, I was even doing a bad job because I should have seen this. But I thank goodness I never seen it before because it allowed a lot of people to come through, kick the tires, realize they're going into a loss-making business. And you, so, therefore, you need to know how to turn that around very, very quickly. Right, um, okay. Yeah. So, and how we turned it around is we facilitate, we, we took a lease option, which this is why I'm saying anybody could do this. On the market for over two years, offers over 340. We got a, a, a lease option uh, for £120,000. And what is that? It means we're taking a lease of the premises. It was for five years, it was £15,000 a year rent. Yeah, and uh, and day one we had a tenant and a small part of it. That there was a, a cafe was part of this business, and we rented that out for fifteen thousand pounds. There was kind of no money in, no money down, no rent to pay. While I came up with the game plan, the real game plan, and okay. as soon as I rented the cafe out, I also rented the rest of the space out as well to the manager. So it was a lease option with MBO, which is a management buyout of the business. Yeah while I worked on the bigger plan. so uh, And I'm assuming, sorry to interrupt, the bigger plan was then starting to look at getting the plans and things drawn up for the, for, you know, for the purpose-built student accommodation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and what that would look like, what the demand is, you know, to basically to give me no hassle, no involvement with that day-to-day -day running of that business because the manager now owned the business. Yeah. And it, which freed me up to then, you know, go and investigate what the demand is, um, what, you know, not just how many units do we need, who are we serving, who is the most likely customer going to be and what do they expect kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And how long, how long did that, that process take you? So you put the tenant in, uh, what term did you give them on the lease, Dan? I gave them five years. 
Okay, so how would, just sort of starting from the beginning, because obviously at this stage you wouldn't have known what plans you were going to end up with ultimately. If you put something into something and then you've got to demolish it, would that be a little bit of a challenge if you've got a tenant on a commercial lease for five years? Well, you obviously need um, a ratchet in there, uh, a mechanism whereby you can gain access, you can take, uh, you know, that property back. Um, okay. Yeah, so you always need to accommodate at some point in time the ability to take that back off the tenant, uh, which is built into the lease. Okay, so whether that was a break clause or something like that, you've made sure you put that off in the tenancy. Okay, yeah, just, just a quick point because I know people are going, oh, it's on a if it's on a lease, so what can we do? And so just yeah, yeah. Sure give that point out for people. Absolutely, and we don't, um, I mean, he bought the business, you know. She, when we take the property back, we will be helping relocate him to another property. Okay. Yeah. So it's a so bit of a win-win. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always a win-win for me. You know, you, you never do deals where somebody comes uh, comes off worse. I always like to do deals where everybody wins kind of thing. It's a more yeah. of a holistic approach to deal making. Um, uh, you know, and it's really putting yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, yeah. uh, as they all say, walk a thousand. Uh, Yards and the other person's moccasins or whatever, um, you know. Yeah. Look at somebody else's shoes. <laughs> something, yeah, something like yeah. that. <laughs> That's what you mean, Dan. I think, yeah, absolutely, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, so, so take us through a little bit sort of about the, the process. Obviously, I think we, we, you know, we all sort of got some familiarity with planning these days. It's taken quite a long time anyway, but just talk us through a little bit about the process on, on this particular one, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, the, the number one process was assessing, you know, what is the demand, what's the alternative use that it could be. And going through the various permutations, student accommodation was not the only thing we hung our hat on. We had we were in the discussions with Co-op Food uh, to take uh, the whole ground floor, yeah, and half the first floor. Uh, we're in discussions with uh, Papa John's Pizza, Domino's Pizza as well, actually. Um, you know, so we were investigating a lot of different routes, and you know, and along the way to seeing what kind of appetite, what kind of demand was there, um, and then you've got to assess that demand. What does that in value look like, and what's the cost of achieving that in value? When I look at things, I try to look very like Japanese long-term thinking. You know, some people think a 5, 10, 15 year lease to, for example, a co-op food, which we have co-op food in our stable, um, or even we've got a 30 year lease to Witherspoons. We've got a, you know, a, a number of different nationals uh, we have on very long-term. The longest lease we've got is 35 years, no breaks, would you believe? And that's to the oh. government. And it's pretty okay. cool. Um, so I try to really think long term why so there's no hassle and to really force those capital appreciation. Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I'm always assessing each outcome, not just on value, but how much hassle is going to be going forward. Yeah. And how much forcing of capital appreciation we're going to get to do one thing to decrease the risk. Because the less uh, gearing you have on a LTV basis, the less risky your whole project is going to be. And clearly, the longer, you know, the longer the lease and somebody like the government or the big names actually increases the covenants of your of your lease as well, doesn't it? Yeah, has an impact yeah. on the PU. Yeah, absolutely. But this one's slightly different because uh, we're going to build this and, you know, it's going to be one of our operational ones where we bring in a national company to manage and operate. Yeah, but we get the revenue kind of thing. Yeah, they, okay. They take a percentage off the top line uh, and we get the rest kind of thing. So, but student accommodation for me with this location, because obviously properties, location, 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 nobody can leapfrog this location because of the moats or the infrastructure around this location. We're next door to the, the student union. We're over the road from the university. It cannot be leapfrogged. Yeah. So nobody yeah. can get a better location. So. For me, it's a very long-term hedge play uh, to create, you know, consistent income over over many years. And and the income, just to give you an idea, is just over a million pounds on this, um, which is quite a lot from one box. It's quite nice. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So back to that next steps kind of thing. So next steps when you get your your plan, your alternative kind of use, what what the best plan is for the long-term thinking or whatever your play is. Your play might be a capital event. You know, buy to add value to sell kind of thing. Um, I like, for me, you've got to have both. You've got to have kind of three buckets going in your life. You've got to have an income bucket, a capital bucket, and a legacy bucket kind of thing. Maybe we touch on that another time, but 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's what we call mixed streams of income, isn't it? You've got to have that balance no matter what you're doing. You've got to have your cash flow. You know, you might want some chunks to do things with. You've got to get some capital appreciation. You've got to think about your longer term. So, you know, there's lots of different boxes to think about, Dan, isn't there? Absolutely. But the next step for, for myself was then obviously speaking to the, you know, the stakeholders, um, you know, Paisley Vision, uh, the planners, the counsellors, uh, UW, UWS themselves, uh, and make sure everybody's kind of bought into this transaction kind of thing or what it could be, the vision of what it could be. Um, and then after that, you kind of start, you know, you're on your scaling massing with the project kind of thing. Um, and after you've then got the architects through phase one of design, we then bring in our QS, you know, our quantity surveyor uh, yeah. to try and make sure we've got the pricing. Because the first thing we designed, uh, we had a GDV at the time, uh, uh, 12 million, uh, and our cost base was 11.7 for construction. So clearly, yeah, not, not the typical model then that a development company would or, or a lender would, would find attractive then, Dan. Yes, absolutely, because it had all the bells and whistles on this development. And uh, and then, obviously, bringing in the QS, you then get to the point of view of, okay, we've got a cake, let's let's amend the baking of that cake. So, number one, we've got to push the GDV higher, and number two, we've got to reduce our costs, which sounds like a contradiction, but with efficient design and a reduction in certain things, uh, you can quite easily get there. So, we're now at $10.1 million of a construction cost, and 50 million GDV. That's a bit more healthy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so happy days. We're, we're kind of there. Do you and, work uh, with, you mentioned investors when we first started. Do you, do you work with investors on your schemes, Dan? Uh, yes. Well, we've got a kind of boutique private equity club um, with our, our members who uh, are investors. And uh, we provide education insights, uh, investment uh, insights. And, and also we provide a mastermind for all our investors to you know, okay. take them on 30 day sprints. So, okay, what was the game plan this 30 days? Uh, what went wrong? How did we fix it? Uh, those kind of things. And we dive into various different topics, um, you know, each 30 days kind of thing. And then um, our first raise is a, um, this is not a, it's a crowdfunding website, but it's it's a closed doors crowdfunding website just for our private club. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, uh, the first the first deal we raised was fifth uh, of November. It completed the deal. Completed. It was Guildford, and um, it, it cost five point one million. It's got a GDP of fourteen mil. Um, and we, we might actually exit that potentially, depending on the numbers. Uh, we might turn that instead of into instead of a long term income play. We might turn that into a capital event with the benefit of planning. Right. Okay. So just as a matter of interest, because obviously there's lots of different uh, offerings out in the marketplace now for finance. You've got your typical development routes. You've got your crowd. You've got you know your, your crowdfunding platforms. You know your peer to peer. Is your is your setup registered or or is it just because it's a private club? It doesn't work in a different way, Dan. Because it's just people privately within that environment. No, in, in that transaction, we took in 26 uh, investors on the one project. And when you're doing these, when you're doing these kind of things, you're in a highly um, regulated kind of compliant industry. You Absolutely. have to, we, we um, like end of last year, we're, we were trying to buy a crowdfunding platform and for one reason or another, it kind of fell by the wayside. And, uh, and I, you know, beginning of the last year, 2021, I decided I'll just create my own. Uh, how hard can it be? Um, how wrong can you be? <laughs> it was hard. Yeah, it did took you, a, did you spend ages engaging with the FCA around this sort of stuff? Um, well, the, the biggest time, uh, January 2021 is when we started developing. The six months before that, we actually did, uh, you know, going down compliance um yeah, kind of roads, potential compliance roads that we could actually do to provide this kind of club platform. And uh, we finally decided on our, our route and then we started developing in January and it was ready kind of July or August or something. And uh, and that was the first raise we did, um, you know, for the November the 5th acquisition. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge area. It's uh, one you got to get right. And every step of the way through our FinTech platform, uh, this compliance built into the thing. Even right. for Kate, we've got our own HNW sophisticated self certification. We've got KYC, KYB, AML, 
Um, we've got proof of funds all built in. Yeah. We've got a loan wizard that then, you know, if it's if it's a SAS pension, for example, uh, you fill out your bits and it gets pinged to your SAS administrator, then it gets pinged back and uh, everything's time stamped and it's uh, it took forever and a day to build. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I can imagine, Dan. Um, yeah, I mean that in itself is a whole is a, is a sort of a whole um, a whole article, isn't it? So um, okay. Yeah. So where are you at now with the with the Paisley one? What, what, what stage are you at now with that that particular project? Right, we've had our pre-app in, um, and that's all fine. Um, a pre-app is like an outline planning permission. Yeah, so it's not a full detailed planning permission. And next week we're ready to submit the full detailed planning application. Okay, okay. And how long do you think that typically is going to take you? I know, I mean, the bigger schemes we know take longer um, because, you know, they, they might be more things to go through and committees and, you know, objections and all that sort of stuff that you have to deal with. So what's your expectation on timescales, done? Well, right now, whatever I say, I'm going to be wrong. I mean, we've, uh, we've been forever and a day with the Guildford one and we've just, we've had the PD approval. Um, there's three planning applications there and we've just had our confirmation that the third one has just been uh, given the green light. We haven't got the, the you know, the, the, the approval, but we've just been told that we've been given the kind of green light on that one, which is great. So okay. we can build either 20 or 25 apartments in Guildford, which is a high value area, but that has taken a long time. And nothing's ever going to plan right now, you know. And why is that? Well, Guildford, for example, um, during the pandemic, obviously everyone's working from home and they continue to do so to a certain extent. But during the pandemic, they had 800 additional applications, more than usual, um, extensions, this, that, and the other, you know, uh, garden okay. offices that are just go for the planning requirement for a planning kind of application. So they're inundated, they can't cope, they don't have the bandwidth, it's happening all over the country, um, and there's a backlog. So there is an approach that we used in Guildford, which is uh, we paid for an additional, uh, after paying for the planning application, we paid an additional fee to have somebody else uh, work on behalf of the council to actually uh you know do the planning permission actually look at it oh, really that, that's interesting not come across yeah. that before. and did the camp were the council clearly were okay with that so well well it's within their department to be honest but because you're paying twice for the same thing uh they put focus on it it's called a ppa okay. yeah so uh and it's not for pd this is pretty much just for you know, major applications. Um, and back to, so back to the Paisley one, um, from what we've heard from the council, you know, they, you know, it could all be done and dusted in six months, um, but we have earmarked a year, you know? Okay. So anything, anything, you know, outside that six, that year is really a bonus to you? Yes, absolutely. And if it doesn't, yeah. So more, more than likely it'd be six to nine months, but okay. you know, we've, got, we've got a year earmarked there. Um, you know, and at, at that point, uh, we might open that up to members of the club as well to, you know, get involved in that project if it, you know, if that's and, the kind of thing they want. And it's interesting you talk about the mastermind group, you know, the, the 30 day thing, because, you know, I see so many things out there these days that people call it, um, was it um, lend, lend and learn? You know, there's, there's all those sorts of things going on. You see different schemes. We do something within what we're doing called Grow to uh, Invest to Know and Grow. So if people want to work with us, they can do a similar sort of thing because everybody's got different requirements. So, yeah. Um, yeah and, and the great thing is about your Paisley one, doesn't really matter how long it takes because it's not costing you anything, Dan, is it? You've got, you've got the tenant in there paying, paying rent. So um, happy days. Yeah, and there's no debt on the thing either, which is unusual. So, um, you know, we're in a position where there's no debt, it, you know, 20% returns coming in. Um, so the real risk starts when we start demolishing because we've extinguished that income. Uh, but obviously by that, you know, that point we've got planning permission, so we've enhanced the value massively. Um, yeah, so it's an exciting time for that one. And it's really, uh, you know, the whole of Paisley, is, I mean, I'd love you know, regeneration projects. Uh, I, you know, what we do, we call it urban alchemy. And, um, you know, right now Paisley is going through a huge regeneration uh, scheme because either side of Paisley, 
there's two shopping centers like mega stuff with the, the full retail experience and the restaurant experience, the cinema experience, one either side, 150 million pound developments that's absolutely quashed Paisley 20 years ago and it's never recovered. If anything, it's got worse, obviously. Vacancy rates are probably some of the worst in the UK. And this site that we, we purchased was recognized in the Paisley Vision Statement as a, you know, a very highly visible uh, site that really needs a lot of work done to it. Because over the road, um, and we're kind of paying homage to the £60 million development uh, you know, investment the council's making in the library, which is huge. And just right. down the road, the shopping centre uh, is literally going to be demolished and turned into you know, a brand new residential quarter which is quite exciting. So we are kind of the, the bit in the middle um, that's kind of bringing it all together and to really, you know, do some, um, to get involved in these kind of projects when you're creating real impact in the local economy, the townscape, you know, for future generations to come, uh, it's really exciting for me. You know, it's uh, something that kind of lights you up, you know? So obviously not, not everybody can start the level that you're at, Dan. It's obviously something you've done and you've grown over the years. So what, what would you say to people? What advice would you give? Because obviously there's, you know, I, I can go to certain areas and, and look at it and think, oh, this is this is this is dire and there might be plans. And you know, you can see the way that some of the things are going. So somebody was interested in doing this that hadn't got your experience. I'm assuming that you could scale this down to start with if you wanted to look for this sort of project initially. You know, it wouldn't have to be something as big as the, you know, the Paisley one, you know, assuming there's, you know, the smaller projects out there that, that people can can start with and start to move forward on, on, on this sort of strategy. Well, just think about it. From the reason we're, we're going over this particular case study is anyone could do this case study. Anybody, it's one hundred twenty thousand. The price of a one-bed flat. Price purchase price, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those people, yeah, yeah, and it's twenty percent return day one if you have a little bit of common sense. Uh, wait until you find out what the game plan is. So imagine if you've got no money and you find this transaction. Yeah, one hundred twenty k. You negotiate the price down to like I did. You got an investor one hundred twenty thousand pounds. You paid for the whole thing cash. Yeah, and you got the tenant in. Uh, through what we talked about, a five-year lease. Yeah, um, they're paying, yeah. yeah, they're paying 24K. The investor can get 10%. You can get 10%. So you can go both get a grand a month each. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay, and then, yeah. and then when you get your planning down the road, you can pay the investor off or you're 50-50. It's a kind of deal that anybody can do. And it's why I was quite excited to share this one because it's, uh, it's so achievable in terms of value, you know? Now, if you didn't want to do the big scheme, because that's scary, uh, then, you know, what you would do is you would get planning permission for the big scheme and sell it. Sell it as a planning game. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, developers. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that, and that's a less risk, the very least amount of risk. Now, if you wanted to retain the property for income for longer term, you know, number one, you've got a tenant in place. Uh, number, but it's a risky tenant because it's a local trader. So that, for me, that's high risk. Uh, I love local. I love national high street brands. I love them both, but it really depends on the person. Um, but number two, imagine you wanted to add some more value that you would just convert the existing building into student accommodation. Right. Okay. Yeah, and you wouldn't have to do the whole building because our yeah, tenant. Down, but yeah, okay. Well, 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 don't knock anything down. Just leave the tenant on the ground but, floor and, yeah. and convert one floor at a, at a time. Okay. Yeah. So there's lots. So, you know, I mean, this this would be the perfect project for most people because, as you say, there's there's so many different approaches. There's so many different exit strategies that that you can take on this one. Um, so yeah, I think that that's you know it's a it's a perfect case study for people to say you know look because price point wise you know we're not looking at you know twelve million or one point two million we're talking one hundred twenty thousand purchases. I mean, yeah. not sure we get much like that in the, in the it's sort of south of the of the Scottish border down at the moment. But you know there's got to be deals out there. So I know. Obviously, this business was in decline. You know that, that it wasn't a viable business. So, what about if you if you come across some say something was trading? Yeah, although it maybe wasn't doing that well. Um, what sort of guidance would you give about approaching something that perhaps was somewhere in between this? You know, the, they've got the real estate. There is a bit of a business, although it's not doing that well, and they want to get rid of it. How would you approach something like that? 
Well, for me, buying businesses on their commercial real estate is great because you're paying a multiple of profits. And okay. if, they, if it's not profitable, and that includes the commercial real estate, it includes the plant equipment, it includes um, the moving parts, yeah, the, the assets and the liabilities kind of thing, depending, you may be just buying the assets, which I tend to do. So you're just yeah. buying the assets and you're leaving any bad stuff behind. Uh, and what's weird about that? Well, number one, it's commercial property. Has there been any capital allowances claimed? More likely not. Number two, there's a whole load of plant equipment that you're buying in there as well. Um, you know, the, the, you can claim allowances on those as well. So there's a hell of a lot of tax advantages going on. Uh, like, for example, in Guildford, when we did our capital allowances claim, um, you know, a lot of this, the capital allowances guys we sent in to give us an idea, uh, they said three, four hundred thousand. And then we started to think, well, have you, have you, have you claimed for the turning circle? A turning circle at the back is you, 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 you're, you kind of drive in with a van and the circle turns so that the back of the van is now at the back door of the shop, you know? It's one of those big, quite a big, uh, massive expense to put these kind of things in. And, you know, the first chap says, no, we haven't claimed for that. Uh, we're not, we have no experience in that. Fair enough. Um, but that's no good for me. Uh, it means you don't know what you're doing in your job. So we then find, obviously, I, I've got five guys I work with. Uh, we, we managed to get the capital allowances claimed to 900,000. And what does that actually mean? Yeah. It means we can have uh, 900,000 profits without any tax at all. In any tax, yeah. And um, to pick up on that, you are so right. There are so many people that do not understand or utilise um, capital allowances. Um, I even did it a while ago on a HMO. It's more difficult these days than the smaller ones. We did it on a property we we, we did in we did in Wales. Um, and I'm funny enough, this week I got offered a commercial building with a response to one of our campaigns. Somebody said, "Well, the building's three quarters full, but if you want to make me a reasonable offer, then I, I, I'll listen." But I'm keeping the capital allowances. Well, you know, I wrote back that wasn't more than we were after anyway because we want to develop. So um, that's the first time I've really come across somebody that's been sort of a bit clued up about capital allowances. But and as I said, people just do not realise the benefits of, of having that if it's not been utilised before, and that's all part of your due diligence process because you have to have approval, don't you, to carry that capital allowance benefit forward yeah the, the interesting thing in Guildford though is uh, we were dealing with Aviva now Aviva is a big fund you know a huge yep. pension fund multi-billion pound pension fund and they usually have everything like claimed left right centre um, but we managed to find an additional 900 now this is after they've had a professional in to claim you know years really? ago a capital allowance specialist has, 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 has missed 900,000 yeah. So That's there's some, scary. it's just like anything in life. You get some people who are, are, are good and you get some people who are great. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and the variances there are massive. So it's worth having a number of different capital allowances specialists in your team um, to call on because some people have experience in sectors. You know, yes, they have experience in capital allowances, um, but maybe if somebody's more industrial, maybe somebody's more retail, somebody's more. Uh, you know, mixed mixed kind of urbanisation schemes. Who knows? But you know, we we use a number of different ones, and they're all good for various different things. Okay, no, that's that's really good advice. And you know, it's like anything in anybody in this game, whether it's a broker, whether it's a solicitor, whether it's a, you know, some are better than others. And as you say, it depends on the background and the experience. So I think that's I think that's really, really great advice. So, uh, yeah, I'm just getting a bit conscious of time. So obviously you've got your hands full at the moment, um, Dan. So have you got any more in the pipeline in, in the UK at the moment? What's, what's, your next, what's your next step? Yeah, we've got a, we're negotiating with a number of, um, you know, that was, remember at the beginning we said we, we deal with really, three types of property. One, our yep. business is in decline. Uh, they yep. own the commercial. One, our businesses are very profitable and own the commercial. And then the third one is obviously uh, pure commercial plays. It could be a parade of shops, parade of shops and uppers, that kind of thing, uh, where we're looking at one that's uh, an investment just now. So it's got a, a national brand in there, uh, a large property, 45,000 45, square feet. And um but it's, it's already rented for the next 19 years, you know, and it has some not much vacant space. So it's, uh, it's got, it's already been rebased. So the rent's been rebased kind of thing. And so we're looking at that as so what's how, the alternative. How would, you, how would you look to add 
value, what would you be your angle? Because you think, oh, well, it's got something in there. It's fully occupied. It's been utilised on the rents. What, uh, you know, most people wouldn't see the angle on that. What, what's what's going to be your angle on that one, Dan? Well, two, two principally. Uh, number one, um, you lock your, uh, in that kind of deal, you lock your value in when you buy. So you have to be buying at a certain certain cap rate or yield. Yeah. So that it's, um, right. and then, and then obviously after that, after five years, there's rent reviews baked in. They're upward only uh, linked to RPI. So there's another good thing. There's a, there's a, some potential on the roof, not to convert to resi because resi is not high enough value in the area. Um, but there's potential for other, believe it or not, tenants. Um, and then on, I think there's about 5,000 square feet that's vacant. So they've got extra kind of value add there. But really for that kind of thing, it's uh, it, you've got to think, okay, 19 years, Sounds like a long time, but what are you going to do with it after 19 years? And so, yeah. you know, that's the game plan that I know exactly what we're going to do with it. Uh, and hopefully we don't even get to do that. They just, you know, re-sign another lease. <laughs> um, but so you're buying the value in day one there. And there's a few extra things to really tweak that cap rate and get extra, extra growth. Uh, but a real focus of ours right now, and we've been negotiating with a lot of businesses, is helping... Um, you know, small and medium business owners, uh, we're trying to buy some businesses that are asset heavy just now that also in the commercial property that are profitable, been around for 10, 20, 30 years, um, survived three recessions, um, and they're making over half a million pounds profit each. So we're right now negotiating with, you know, a number to acquire the whole business and the commercial property. Um, and then one thing you can do uh, with that kind of, business is you know just do a simple sale lease back you've added a ton of value yeah and can, can, can you do that with commercial leases because say, say for example if we, we look at the equivalent on a residential basis if you like a, a tenant you know you know if you've got a tenant or you've got an owner that wants to sell something you can't actually buy it and then put the tenant back in these days they, they stopped doing that a long time ago so is is what you're talking about a similar sort of thing only on commercial dan but yeah well there's, there's a number of different things there's one where you you know you have your uh a property and you're putting national high street brands in there on long-term leases yeah okay um yeah so that's one strategy i kind of do that's really really uh, what well, is quite profitable, um, but the most important thing you're forcing massive capital appreciation, which means you're de-risking the whole thing, which is really really important to me. But on this kind of strategy, what we're talking about is buying trading businesses um, okay. that, are, that are asset heavy, commercial property heavy, and yep. when you buy them, separating the lease from uh, the trading business from the property with a long term lease. Just the simple act of doing that adds a ton of value. Yeah. Okay. Um, so imagine if you're buying a business for, say, you know, three times to keep it simple, yeah? And it's a, mil it's a million pounds profit. So you're paying three million pounds for this thing, yeah? Right. Now in there, if it's a million pounds profit, you know, the property is usually quite big. So say yeah. the rental is 300,000 pounds, yeah? So say you then put a rental in of 300,000 pounds for a 20-year lease, then your profit's down to 700 over here, so it's only worth 2.1. Yeah, nice. so it sounds like you've lost nine hundred thousand pound of value, but over here you've got three hundred thousand pound of rent. And it's worth about four and a half million. Okay, so this wouldn't be the um, original, the original owner that was running the business. Would this be a different? This would be a different tenant, would it? No, this would be us acquiring the business. Okay, so you're taking it. You're buying the business from them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so really. You know, the, I call it ABCs, acquisitions of businesses and commercial, as such a an incredible space because of the values you're buying it, the multiples you're buying it. Yeah, uh, there's one business we're looking at right now. They have, um, they're doing two million EBITDA profit, and they have a big box, forty five thousand square foot box where they operate from. But the land is incredible, and as soon as I see the land, I, I get excited because it's roadside. And I can see a Starbucks drive through there. I can see a Subway. I can see a Donuts, this kind of thing. Right. So I'm okay. kind of coming into this, you know, business acquisition thinking, what can we do with the land? Yeah. Right. Because okay. there's, a ton of, uh, there's a ton of land there. Easiest thing to do would be put another two forty five thousand square foot boxes when they get pre-let. Okay. You know? 
which would pay for the business. So you're kind of getting the business for free at that point. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so very creative and, um, yeah, uh, lots of opportunity within, within there then. Yeah. It's not for everybody. It's not easy to be honest. Um, no, I can uh, imagine it doesn't sound, it's something sound easy than others, Dan, but it's like anything. It's not always that easy once you start to get involved with some of these things, is it? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's the kind of thing we um, we don't suggest our club members do. Uh, if they do want to do, we help them through it. Um, our investors, um, but really, it's an opportunity for them because every investor, you know, like a staff pension owner or something, some, yeah. somebody's had the the sense to claim back their pension, uh, a traditional pension, and put it under their control as like a business pension, got a staff pension. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about a SAS, well, there's a lot of great things about a SAS pension, but when you've done that, it's usually uh, busy professional solopreneurs or business owners that don't have the time then to then go and invest that SAS pension. Yeah. Mm. And they just don't have the time to go and do the deals. They don't have the time to do this. And really, if you think about investing on simple terms, if you follow some of the greats on the planet, like Ray Dalio, for example, he has principles investing. One of those principles is called the Holy Grail. Or he calls it that. Okay. And the Holy Grail simplified is really this. He says you only need 15 to 20 bets or investments, as he calls it. And the more uncorrelated they are, the less risk, therefore, the higher return you're going to get. Yeah. So the more uncorrelated they are, the, the, the less risk and the more return you're going to get because less of them will go wrong. And yes, investments, some will go wrong. Um, but the more, so if, if one sector doesn't do well, it you know it shouldn't affect every other investment you're in. So what well, we do in our boutique private investors club is help investors through deals, but we also help them uh, invest in deals that they like that we bring to the table. Um, okay. And so we're we're providing a kind of holistic, um, you know, a, a diversified approach to investing your SaaS pension when you just don't have the time. Yes. <laughs> I did. So, so obviously that's your that, that that's one approach. That's a hands off where you work with investors that don't have the time to do it. Obviously, we'll have quite a few readers, um, you know, from YPN that are, uh, you know, active, um, you know, active property people. Um, you know, want to find their next project or find their next investment, and they might have some people they're working with. So. Um, sort of thinking on that sort of level, what would be the, the advice to somebody wanting to start with this sort of strategy, Dan? What 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 would you say to them? Where what, what you know fundamentally, where would you where do you say to go? What what's you know some quick simple rules for for what we've talked about? If somebody wants to get into this sort of stuff and do it themselves rather than being an investor. Yeah. Well, well, just one simple thing. Everybody's looking in the same places. Yeah. Okay. Just start, keep looking there, but also add something else on where nobody else is looking. Why was this property not sold? Because it was on a business selling website. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a national company, a regional company, huge company. So start subscribing to big companies that sell businesses um, that also own their own real estate. And then all of a sudden, you'll start to get things coming up um, that look quite interesting. And, you know, whatever the sticker price is, is never the sticker price. If it's a business in decline, if it's a business that's producing great profits and it's for sale, then they will get the sticker price of very, you know, not a million miles away from that. Um, what we what we do for businesses, um, you know, that are, are profitable is we never go through brokers or agents. We always deal direct to vendor. Yeah, always. Because you're dealing with somebody that has never even thought about an exit plan, um, has no expectations, of, their mind's not being <laughs> watched by the broker on unrealistic expectations. But on the other side of things, what you're looking for in businesses in decline, where you're trying to repurpose and reprofile redundant retail into high-performance income producing assets, what you're looking for is businesses that have been on there for a while. And they yes. also have that commercial property and they're in unsexy sectors. Yeah. Who, who goes bowling anywhere? Uh, you know, we turned a bowling alley into a parade of blue chip brands. Um, oh, you know, yeah. snooker hall. We, we turned a snooker hall. Who, who plays snooker anymore? I, I, I don't even know anyone. Um, you know, a lot of bed and breakfasts, you know, 
have turned into uh, the new Airbnb, many hotels. Service, kind of yeah, service accommodation, absolutely, which is sort of huge again at the moment, um, bouncing back after after lockdown. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's perhaps, you know, as you say, uh, you know, looking maybe where the masses don't, basically, I think is the message, Dan, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, another one was a trailer park, um, you know, getting turned into uh, self-storage because that's a booming right. sector. You know? Right. Yeah. Storage. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, all these, um, you know, these jumbo dot storage things that have popped up all over the place for, for whatever reason. Um, yeah. Well, so, this is this is self storage with just containers. Okay. So, you know, shipping containers. So right. Okay. What, what, what's great about that is the great thing about that is you can rate your first twenty to see if the business works. Yeah. If it doesn't work, you haven't hardly got any skin in the game. Yeah, and if yeah. it does work, you can then build to order. Right. You, don't need, you don't need 200 containers day one. You can kind of build to order. So it's a great model. Um, and again, that's buying businesses that own what? The land. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very, very creative stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to sort of set a few, a few minds racing down. So, so thanks for that. And and when, when you're not doing all these amazing things with adding value to these businesses and these buildings, um, what do you sort of like to do in your, you know, in your, your free time, your downtime, how do you, how do you chill and, and manage the contrast of all of this? Well, I, you seem quite I, laid back actually. <laughs> I, I am pretty laid back and, um, I, I think Richard Branson put it best where he said when life and work merges into one and it's just life, you know, that's when you know you're doing something you love. So okay. when, when we go for walks, my wife and I, um, we're in uh, Porto Benus just now, which is on the south of Spain. And in the, morning, place. <laughs> in the morning we go for a walk. And we, you know, that's our board meeting, <laughs> walking along the right. beach. Okay. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, a lot of things, life, family, business, um, you know, all those things. And uh, and then after that, you know, we jump on, make it, you know, do my calls, whatever needs to be done, chase things up. Um, you know, so it's, for me, it's all, it's all just the one thing. When I'm talking about business, I'm chilling. When I'm in the bath with a bottle of wine with my wife, I'm chilling. We we're talking about whatever. Um, you know, it's all kind of blends into one. And that was uh, always an objective I had where years ago I had a business, I had, you know, nearly 300 staff and uh, I was anything but chilled. <laughs> every every day brought another issue. Um, that was, you know, and, um, and after that, I kind of mentally focused on, okay, let's buy business in decline. Let's... Um, you know, put somebody in between me and the customer, which was National High Street brand, which yeah. put, put them in between me and the customer and also forced the capital appreciation massively. But it, it basically gave me one thing, multiple diversified long-term income streams. And when you've kind of got a number of those going on, you know, life becomes more relaxing and you start looking at transactions. Um, you know, do I really want to do that? Is that exciting is it oh, fun there's more, there's more choice isn't there i think when you get to a certain point down um you know then then you do look at things differently do i really need this do i want to no so okay maybe that's not quite right for me now so i do think it gives you it gives you more choice and everybody these days wants to talk about you know that that lovely laptop lifestyle sort of thing um and it's just yeah. getting to that point where you can do that i think yeah, and, that, and absolutely. And rule number one for us is always, always look after investors. Number one, you know, number one, two, and three. They're, 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 you know, they are the guys that we look after. So that's why we we'll, we think about projects and we look at hedging. Okay, how do, can we hedge this in multiple ways? How can we de-risk it? Um, because yeah. we're, you know, rule number one is return of capital always. And um, and for me, I always, you know, de-risk because I'm a kind of de-risk in a person in my mindset uh, I'm 56 that you know that when you get to past 50 you start thinking about less risk um, but I'm Absolutely. I'm with you on that one I'm there, Dan. <laughs> I'm there in fact we met we met a vendor this week and it's given me some great ideas talking to you and, and he's you know he's a lot older than that and you know we looked at what he'd got and, and where he was and he shared some personal things with us and we gave him some advice because um, he, he, he's had some challenges and we said look whatever you do is don't don't fix 
you know, don't fix what's coming up for expiring for, you know, too long because you lose the flexibility of wanting to change things. So things do change as you get older. And I think you've got to assess things in a different way. So I think that's I think that's absolutely spot spot on advice, Dan. So thank you very much for that. Um, and it's a conscious time now. So thank you very much for your time. It's been um it's been enlightening speaking to you and let you go off and enjoy the sun in Porto Bonus now. Um, and if you could get the details back to us, um, I'll share this with Jane and then I'm sure she'll, she'll be in touch. So just to let you know, we'll pull it forward to April. I'm sure we'll have enough to, to do, um, you know, a really informative article for that. So it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and thank you so much. I've, I've learned so much and um, have a, have a great afternoon. Yeah, Julie, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much and uh, look forward to our next chat.